Now, as we begin this morning in Mark chapter 9, we're sort of confronted with one of the difficulties of teaching through the Bible book by book and chapter by chapter is you, you, you end up ending in the middle of an idea. And that's really what we did last week. We ended in the middle of the idea that uh, Jesus was speaking to his disciples about the whole issue of greatness. They were walking along the way, really pointing themselves roughly in the direction of Jerusalem. Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion and resurrection. And as they were on the way, the disciples had a discussion on the road. They discussed their favorite topic of debate, which was which one of them was the greatest. And as they discussed it, uh, Jesus listened to it. And when they finally made a stop and sat down for a while, Jesus talked to them about their conversation. And Jesus sought to correct their ideas about what true greatness was about. He said, and this is in Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, you should be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is reminding and teaching his disciples about the true nature of greatness. It's not about status. It's not about how many people uh, serve you. It's about how many people you serve. It's not about being first. It's about being last for the glory of God. And as Jesus expressed this, as Jesus taught his disciples this, he really wanted them to get the message deep down about what true greatness was about. Now, as he develops the thought further in verse 38, he'll illuminate for us another aspect of true greatness. That is that true greatness isn't cliquish. Instead, it's inclusive. Look at what he says here, verse 38. Now, John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. This is so true to human nature. You see, previously in Mark chapter 9, the disciples were all very frustrated because they encountered a young boy who was demon-possessed, and the disciples tried their best to cast the demon out of the boy, and they were unable to. Of course, when Jesus came along, Jesus dealt with the situation straight away and successfully and with great authority from God cast the demon out of the poor boy. But here you see this, if there's anything that's annoying to somebody when they can't do something, it's somebody else who can do it. If you see in verse 38, John says, Teacher, we saw somebody who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. You get the idea, don't you? Uh, There were a larger group of the followers of Jesus just than the twelve, or even just than the 70. There were other people who followed Jesus perhaps when he was in their basic region. But as Jesus was an itinerant minister, there were many people, hundreds of people who followed him, perhaps at a greater distance than the 12 or the 70, but they were still followers of Jesus. And one of these followers of Jesus took the the example and the teaching of Jesus seriously and was apparently attempting to minister to people who were possessed of demons and was successfully casting demons out of people. John saw that and he said, Mister, you've got to stop. You've got to stop this. You're not one of the twelve. You're not one of our inner circle. And besides, if we can't cast out demons, then you shouldn't be able to either. <laughs> That's the real competitive spirit, isn't it? And it's always poison when it reaches into a ministry. 
If there's anything that's galling to somebody who has that competitive spirit, it's when uh, you know, you're, you're doing one thing and somebody else is being very successful in their ministry. You start to begrudge them their success. Friends, that's a wicked attitude of heart. We should hope that our, strong, our ch- church rather would be fruitful and strong and blessed and still be the weakest church in the community because that would mean that there would be even more churches that are stronger and even more blessed. And that should be the heart of any truly Christian person. Lord, bless them. Let them prosper. Let them be blessed. And so this was not the heart of John, though. He said, we forbade him because he does not follow us. But look at the heart of Jesus in response. Verse 39, Jesus said, do not forbid him. For one who works a miracle in my name can soon, excuse me, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you see the heart of Jesus in this? He's telling us that there are many people who may be different or or maybe even incorrect in some aspect of their presentation or teaching, yet they still put forth Jesus in some manner. So listen, let God deal with them. Those who are not against a biblical Jesus are still for him, at least in some way. You know, sometimes you see it on the television or listen to it on the radio or hear about it from afar. And there's maybe some man or some ministry that seems to be doing very well. And you you, you listen to him and you go, man, that's weird. You know, how can they look like that and still be doing what they're doing? And you think... I mean, don't they have a mirror that they look in or watch the whole thing and you just kind of go, wow, what's going on with this whole ministry thing? And sometimes when you get really discouraged like that or wonder, well, Lord, why don't you just strike them down? Why don't you just do... Those thoughts have run through your head. I know they have. You say, well, why don't you do that? Just say this. Just say, I'm sure glad they're not preaching Buddha. You know, it takes all kinds, doesn't it? And so, God bless them. As long as they're proclaiming Jesus, the ministry of Jesus will get through somehow. Jesus will find a way to exalt himself, to glorify himself. You know, Paul in his own day saw many men preaching Jesus from many different motives. And some of the motives were evil. Yet Paul could still rejoice that Christ was being preached. And so, we just praise God that the name of Jesus gets preached. And then he encourages us to have a very inclusive kind of heart. Verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Because of this principle of unity, it's appropriate to show kindness to others in the name of Jesus. Well, even a cup of water, if it's given in the heart and the nature of Jesus, it'll be rewarded. You know, nothing can seem more petty than giving a a cup of water to somebody in the name of Jesus. They're going to drink it, and an hour later, they'll be thirsty right again. It doesn't last for anything. But friends, God remembers the heart of giving, not just the gift itself. And Jesus says, show this practical love, this inclusiveness towards others. Your small act of kindness towards somebody else, in Jesus' name, it will not be forgotten. You know, sometimes we think that real Christian love and devotion, it's only going to be shown in these most dramatic kind of gestures and only the big things. Jesus said, how many cups of cold water have you passed out lately? How many little things have you done to bless somebody? How many little things have you done just to cheer somebody's heart in the Lord? 
Now, I think it's fascinating what Jesus continues on in verse 42, because verse 41 was the positive side of a small act of kindness. Verse 42 is the negative side. Look look at it here, verse 42. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see, if a small act of kindness done in Jesus' name will be eternally remembered so will any cause for stumbling. And the punishment's pretty severe, don't you think? Jesus says, you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you if there was a rope tied around your neck and the other end of that rope was tied to a millstone and it was thrown into the middle of the ocean. This is like the biblical version of the mafia's cement shoes or something. (laughs) You read this and you say, good heavens, what's this about? Especially interesting when you find out, you know what a millstone is, don't you? It's a stone that was used for grinding grain up into flour and all of that. And and there were many different versions of it in the ancient world. There was a smaller version that that a woman might use just to grind up flour for her own home use. And then there was a larger version, like a big stone disc that that an animal, like a donkey or something, would pull at, at a mill. Jesus uses the word for the bigger stone here. Nobody should mistake it here. What's really shocking is what Jesus says. Did you see it there in verse 42? It would be better for him if a millstone was... That's the better choice. To have this stone tied around your neck and thrown in the middle of the sea. And what's the danger here? He says, don't stumble his little ones. Many Christians don't take this statement of Jesus seriously enough. They don't appreciate the great danger that there is in doing something to cause somebody else to stumble, especially one of these little ones. I want you to think of little ones in two different ways. First of all, we think of little ones, quite obviously, as those who are just young in age. Children, you don't want to stumble them. You don't want to put a cause for sin or anything that would discourage them in their relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't want to put it there. But we also think of little ones in the same terms as those who are young or little in the Lord. Those young believers, those who are just coming to an initial knowledge of Jesus Christ. Be very careful with them, friends. You know, some Christians think nothing of drawing young, weak Christians into their own squabbles and divisions. And they they themselves might emerge without much damage. They themselves might come forth, well, it didn't bother me all that much, but what about the little ones that you brought along with you? They can end up shipwrecked. So Jesus says, be careful, be very careful with the little ones. There's a very severe judgment waiting for those who cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. So you have it on both sides, right? Every gesture of kindness will be remembered before the Lord, that cup of cold water, but then you also have it on the negative side. You cause one of the little ones to stumble and God will hold you for account. Now look at the urgency that Jesus presses upon us here in verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Tragically, some people have taken 
the teaching of Jesus here in a wrong way, in a sense that Jesus did not intend, and they've cut off their hands. They've gouged out their eyes. They've mutilated themselves in some way in a desperate attempt to stop sinning. Friends, that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus says here. Maybe I should use this as sort of an excuse to make a larger point on our way of understanding the Bible. You know how we should understand the Bible? Literally. I'll say it again because for some people that's absolutely shocking today. You say, you understand the Bible literally? Well, of course you do. How else are you going to understand it? If you don't understand the Bible literally, then you may as well just pick out a crossword puzzle. You may as well get out the magic eight ball. Because you're just going to make up your own meaning and throw it on the Bible. Of course we understand the Bible literally. There is no other way to understand the Bible. But we must understand what we mean when we say we understand it literally. That's simply this. We understand it according to its literary context. In other words, we understand that the Bible uses different forms of literary approach and meaning. Sometimes it speaks uh, describing a historical narrative. And so when it says the children of Israel attacked the Amalekites, we believe that the children of Israel attacked the Amalekites. It's not that complicated. But other times the Bible speaks in poetic ways. Other times the Bible speaks with metaphors or figures of speech. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Psalms where David is talking about the agony of his soul before God. And he says, I wept before you all night. I make my bed swim with tears. You think, well, we got to take the Bible literally, brother. So what it means is that David cried so much that there were two or three inches of water in his bedroom and he floated his bed because he said, I make my bed swim in tears. That's ridiculous, isn't it? We all understand what he means. He's using a poetic metaphor. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration to make the point that his bed was drenched with tears. Well, in the same way in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus talks about cutting off hands and gouging out eyes and cutting off feet, he's speaking in hyperbole. Yes, we understand what he means literally. And what he's getting at is you have to be willing to sacrifice in the battle against sin. Friends, we can understand very plainly that Jesus is using a figure of speech in making his point here because the problem with taking Jesus' words in the way he didn't intend is that bodily mutilation doesn't go far enough in controlling sin. You see, sin isn't really a matter of the hand or the foot or the eye. If my hand sins and I cut it off, I've got another hand, don't I? My foot sins and I cut, I've got another foot. I could cut off all my limbs. I still got a mind and a heart that I can sin with. Friends, the issue isn't cutting things off your body. It's about dealing with things in your heart, but taking the attitude that Jesus speaks of here. And you get the point very plainly in the attitude he's trying to communicate, don't you? Hell is so terrible. It's a place of eternal torment where the worm of conscience tortures its victims eternally and where the fire is never quenched. That place is so terrible, you should be willing to sacrifice anything to avoid it. So if it means denying yourself that pleasure, if it means denying yourself what seems to be your privilege, it's worth it, my friends. 
Jesus is trying to correct a big misunderstanding in the minds of his disciples. You see, in all their debate about who's the greatest, and what they're really talking about is the reward that they're going to get as disciples. And they're thinking about the kingdom of God mainly in terms of reward. And friends, there is reward in the kingdom of God, but there's also sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, let's turn our hearts and our minds not only at reward, but let's also look at sacrifice. Really, he's saying the same thing he said in Mark chapter 8, where he said, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. It, it, To follow me means to pick up your cross and follow me daily. So friends, the message of Jesus is clear here. Knowing how terrible hell is, it's worth any sacrifice to avoid. So we don't think of the kingdom of God just in terms of reward, but also in terms of sacrifice. Now, isn't this a failing that sometimes men and women have committed in their presentation of the gospel? They presented Christianity merely in terms of reward and never in terms of sacrifice. Never in terms of say, well, you're going to have to lose your life to find it. There's great life for you in Jesus Christ, but you have to lose your life to find it. You have to die before you can gain resurrection life. And so it means dying daily unto the Lord. It means being willing to have Jesus change everything in your life. You come to him with that kind of heart and God can do great, great things. Now he speaks more on this idea of sacrifice and this kind of idea of bringing ourselves to the Lord in this manner in verses 49 and 50, which I'll admit are two of the more difficult verses in the whole Gospel of Mark, where he says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. What does Jesus mean when he says to be seasoned with fire? And then he talks about being seasoned with salt as every sacrifice. Well, there's two main ways that people have tried to understand this. And to be honest, I think either one of them is true. They may be speaking, Jesus may be speaking, I should say here, about the idea of fire referring to tribulation and suffering. And Jesus saying, you've got to count the cost. You come and give your life to God as a living sacrifice, you're going to feel a little bit of heat under yourself. And as well, in the Old Testament, every sacrifice that was offered before God had to be accompanied with salt. And so Jesus says, here it come, just as every sacrifice under the law required salt, so the living sacrifices my followers bring to me will be seasoned with suffering and tribulation. As other people believe that fire here refers to the Holy Spirit. And the way that the Holy Spirit and His presence in our lives seasons us, it purifies us, it preserves us, and it adds flavor to our lives, and so it makes us an acceptable living sacrifice to God. And as to which one of those approaches are true, which one of them are accurate, I say, yes, I guess. They're both true, aren't they? Certainly, we need to be a living sacrifice before God, and sometimes that will involve some difficulty. But then it's also true that The Holy Spirit and His presence in our life is what purifies us and makes us an acceptable sacrifice to God. As we come into chapter 10, Jesus is going to change the subject entirely. Take a look here, verse 1. Then He arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And the people gathered to Him again, and as He was accustomed, He taught them again. Jesus is now again on His way to Jerusalem. There's no turning back now. He's never going to go back to his home in Galilee. No, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows that what awaits him there is a cross. 
He can also see beyond the cross to the empty tomb beyond. But he knows that that's what's in front of him. Now, on his way, the Pharisees came and asked him a question. Look at verse 2. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? A divorce in Jesus' day was just like it is in our own day. It was a controversial topic among the followers of God. You know, it's a controversial topic today. People want to know, well, does the Bible say that a Christian can be divorced? Does the Bible say that if a Christian is divorced, can they remarry? What does God say are proper grounds for divorce? All these different questions. And to answer those questions, we really need to take a look at the Word of God next week. (laughs) Because mainly what I'm going to deal with today is what God has to say about marriage. This is sort of too big of a topic for us to cover just in one morning. And so today I'm going to focus on what this passage says about marriage. Next week, we'll focus on what this passage and what the passage immediately afterward says about divorce. And so I apologize in advance. In a way, I'm giving you half a message here this morning. But it's important that you understand that the Bible does speak with some clarity on this matter, on on what divorce is all about, and when divorce is permitted, and when remarriage is permitted in light of divorce, and all of those things. But I'm not going to focus on those questions this morning. That'll wait till next week. But understand the context of what Jesus says here and how he sets up his reply to the Pharisees' question again in verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they said this, testing him. In Jesus' day, there were two main groups of rabbis that went around with two different teachings on divorce. One of them was headed up by a very prominent rabbi named Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel had a view of divorce that basically said... You could divorce somebody for just about any reason. He, he might have the, the, what we might term today no-fault divorce. You don't want to be married to your wife anymore? Divorce her. Then there was another rabbi, Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai had a different idea. He said, no, 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 no. The scriptures are very narrow on this issue. The only reason why you can righteously divorce your spouse is because of sexual immorality. And actually, as Matthew records this incident, he brings out this debate in an even more clear way. In verse 2, we read, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the question is put even more clearly. The Pharisees asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That's the real issue here. Not just is it lawful, but what are the reasons by which it can be lawful? And the debate really centered around the Mosaic Law. In the Law of Moses, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, God gave permission for divorce. Let me read that passage to you, Deuteronomy 24, 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. Very plainly, Deuteronomy 24.1 says, Okay, I will give the permission for divorce if the husband finds some uncleanness in his wife. And the whole debate among the rabbis centered around that one word, uncleanness. What is uncleanness in the wife? Well, Rabbi Shammai understood that uncleanness meant sexual immorality. 
And that's why he said, no, the only reason why there can be a divorce among the people of God is if that marriage bond has been broken by sexual immorality. But the other rabbi, Rabbi Hillel and his followers, they understood uncleanness to mean any sort of discretion, indiscretion, I should say. Any sort of thing that the husband found objectionable in the wife, he could divorce her for. And they gave specific examples. If the wife really messed up a meal, the husband could divorce her. If the wife spoke with a strange man in the street, she could be divorced. If the wife criticized the husband's family in any way, she could be divorced. If the wife was a brawling woman, now you'll love this definition of what a brawling woman is. A brawling woman was a woman whose voice could be heard in the next house over. (laughs) And here's another one. There was even one rabbi who went the length of saying that uncleanness meant that if a man found a woman who was prettier in his eyes than his wife, he could divorce his wife. Pretty contradictory assumptions of what uncleanness is here, right? And so they're hoping to throw Jesus on the horns of a dilemma here. Well, Jesus, we're figuring you're going to alienate half your audience when you come down on this one way or another. So what are you going to answer, Jesus? And look at what Jesus says in verse 3. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Now, don't you love it when Jesus says, oh, I don't want to, let's get back to the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says. What did Moses command you? Now, these guys were experts in the law of Moses. And so they come out in verse 4 and say, They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. I want you to see, they answered their own question there. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. I want you to understand that their own answer right there contradicts the whole teaching of Rabbi Hillel and his very loose understanding of what divorce and marriage was all about. Because another thing that Rabbi Hillel taught was not only did a man have many different excuses by which he could divorce his wife, but Rabbi Hillel also said that if a man has a bad wife, it is a righteous duty to divorce her. They took this permission for divorce and they twisted it into a command for divorce. And nowhere does God command divorce. Let me say that again. There is nowhere in the scriptures where God commands divorce. There are places where he gives permission for it. But nowhere does he command it. And I would hope that even as these Pharisees heard these words coming out of their own mouth, Moses permitted a man, they'd be thinking, wait a minute, permission isn't the same as a command. And they would understand this. But look at what Jesus says in verse 5 as he continues to explain. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. In other words, that's why God even permitted divorce. Because of the hardness of the heart of human beings. You might say, well, wait a minute. Whose hardness? Is it the hardness of the offending party? Maybe it's the hardness of heart of the person who committed sexual immorality. Say, how could they be of such a hard heart as to violate the marriage covenant in that way? That's hardness of heart. And because of that hardness of heart, God says, I'll give permission for divorce. But I don't think that's the only hardness involved. There's also the hardness of heart, perhaps, of the offended party. Who says, I cannot forgive. I will not forgive. 
I can never not hold this against my spouse. And because I will not forget, because my heart is hardened towards my spouse, then I will get a divorce. So sometimes it's the hardness of heart of the offending party. Sometimes it's the hardness of heart of the offended party. Wouldn't you say that most often it's hardness of heart on both of their parts? And Jesus says, this is why God permitted it. But that wasn't his intention. Let me start again at verse 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't you see there as God cries out and he says, listen, you can talk about divorce. I want to talk to you about marriage and how permanent I want the marriage bond to be. You see, Jesus transitions this from a talk about divorce to now a talk about marriage. And the problem wasn't that these Pharisees did not understand the law about divorce. That wasn't the issue. The problem was they didn't have a biblical understanding of what marriage was all about. Oh, don't we find that true in the church today? I have to say that by and large, the Christian church today does not have a biblical understanding of what marriage is about. Friends, it's absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential that people keep a focus on what the Bible says marriage is all about and what the Bible says are the important principles and foundational uh, ideas behind a Christian marriage. Look at how Jesus explains it in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation... I wonder how many people would accept this from Jesus today and say, oh, Jesus, you're so old fashioned. (laughs) You know, if we're going to understand anything about marriage, you need to give us something new, something cutting edge. Oh, good heavens, Jesus, the the times have changed. Don't you understand that the rules are different today? We need a modern understanding. Why, with all the problems, with all the stresses, all the difficulties in modern life, we need a modern solution. We need something brand new. And Jesus says, let me teach you about marriage. And not only am I going to go back in time, I'm going to go back to the very beginning. I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Those lay out the foundational principles of marriage. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That means they're different. You might have thought that the devil made them male and female. But God made them male and female, different, so that they can be combined together in a whole. So you get the idea here. Two different entities, if you will, male and female, God wants to bring together in a strong, vital unity. Not the man's sphere and the women's sphere, but rather seeing that they're both hemispheres. And they're brought together to be one whole sphere. God made them male and female and then brought them together. Friends, God's real purpose for marriage, it's never fulfilled in divorce, but it's only fulfilled in seeing God's original plan for marriage and in saying God made them. God's reminding us that that he owns marriage. Let's always remember that. This is God's institution. He's letting us borrow it. We didn't make it up. 
Do you think we would do it this way if we were left to our own sinful inclinations? No way. And that's why you see such a radical departure in these days from the biblical idea of marriage. Friends, God says, no, I own marriage. It's my institution. If you follow my rules, you'll be blessed. Look at the overwhelming idea here of God's ethic of marriage. Verse 7, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Friends, in those four verses, you have it repeated four more times, the idea of unity, of a oneness, of a coming together. The idea of God's plan for marriage is not two different camps which have good relations with each other. You're not talking about two different countries that have a good diplomatic core between them and know how to communicate well and know how to get along well and and they have lots of nice programs. God says, no, you're not two countries anymore. You're one country. You're one. You're joined together. The first time it says they're joined together, where Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, where he says, and be joined to his wife. The idea there is of gluing things together. You know, sometimes you can glue something together and it's stronger than the original substance itself. And when you try to break it, you'll break the wood instead of the bond that's made between. That's how God wants the bond between a husband and wife to be. And then he uses another term for joined together there in verse 9 where he says, therefore what God has joined together, that's literally using the idea of yoked together. Like you would yoke together two oxen to do work. Wives are saying, I knew the Bible said my husband was a dumb ox. (laughs) And that's the problem, right? You're yoked together with him. But you see how it is. You you take two animals, you take two oxen, and you put that yoke between them, and you tell them to go out and do some work. And if those oxen aren't of the same mind, if they're not of the same heart, nothing's going to get done. One says, well, I think we should go right. And the other says, I think we should go left. What's going to get done? Nothing. They're just going to be pulling against each other. One says, well, I think it's time to rest. The other says, I think it's time to work. Nothing's going to happen. One will be trying to drag the other one along. They're yoked together. They need to work together. They need to head the same way. If They're going to be joined together in the way that God wants them to be joined. If you want to see how powerful and how strong God wants this unity to be, look at it here in verse 7, where it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. This new unity is so overriding that the bond between husband and wife should be even stronger than the bond between parent and child. That's staggering, isn't it? Because you know how deeply you are attached to your children. You know the attachment that perhaps you have or have had with your parents. You know the depth of that attachment. And God says the bond between husband and wife is even more important. Because a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The marriage bond should be even stronger than the blood bond. Notice it says here that God has joined them together. Jesus wanted the Pharisees to know that in a marriage relationship, God sees that relationship as spiritually binding. It's not just a social contract. God has joined them together, and God wants to keep them together. And not just keep them together in bare toleration of one another. 
No, as I look out upon you this morning, I have no way of knowing which of you have a wonderful, vibrant marriage and which of you are really struggling. I don't know which of you have said to each other this last week that it's the best it's ever been in your relationship and which of you have discussed getting divorced this last week. But I do know this, that God wants to take your relationship no matter how good or how bad it is and he wants to found it on the bedrock of his principles and he wants to draw you together in this unity. Why don't you start weeding out everything in your relationship that, that battles against this unity? Friends, I think this is an absolutely overwhelming command to God for us. He says, I want to join you together. Now again, next week we'll talk about the instances and the scriptures which speak very carefully about when God says, uh, I will allow a separation between them. Friends, let's understand this very plainly, that this unity is the foundation of marriage. It's the theme repeated over and over again in this brief passage that we've read from the mouth of Jesus. This unity is God's gift in marriage, and it's what should be pursued. That reliable friendship, that partnership, that oneness between husband and wife. And friends, we, we in our married life must act in a way always that's consistent with the nature and purpose of marriage as God created. He created it to be a oneness. Now, how do you do it? I think you do it by acting according to two great principles. And these are principles that are repeated in almost every place where the Bible talks about what a Christian marriage should be. The first principle should probably be addressed to husbands. And it says to husbands, you must honor the fundamental unity of the marriage relationship. That's a great temptation for husbands, isn't it? To, to see themselves as one flesh and their wife as one flesh. And they wish the best for their wife. God bless them. But they don't perceive the real unity. They don't perceive the real need to say, this woman is me. I need to understand that God put me here to, to care for her and to nurture her and to bless her. And when I bless her, when I am a blessing unto her, then I'm blessing myself. We're one. Husbands, if you do that, God will bring so much blessing into your life. When you honor the fundamental unity of the marriage relationship, when you have it in your mind, and it's not the way we're wired by the nature we received by Adam, but it's something that God can develop within us in a beautiful and powerful way. Make that your prayer, husbands. Pray, God, help me to honor the fundamental unity in my marriage relationship. It's something that you have established, but it's something that you also want to develop in the marriage relationship. Help me with that, God. God will do it, and believe me, it'll be a blessing not only to your wife, it'll be a blessing to you. Husbands, you know, when your wife's happy, you're happy. When your wife's miserable... If you're not miserable now, you're going to be. <laughs> be a blessing unto your wife. The Bible says you love your wife, you love yourself. You're going to bless yourself. But here's another great principle in marriage, and this is unto the wives. Not only is there a unity in the marriage relationship that must be honored, but friends, there's a fundamental order in that unity. And the order of that unity, God has said, the husband is the head of that home, and he needs to be respected and honored as the head of that home. And wives, this is a, a very important call for you. 
To say, yes, there is this unity. God has us as one flesh. But the unity is really not of two equal partners. Of course, they're equal in nature. They're equal in purpose. But God has said one of them is going to be in charge. There's a headship there. And that fundamental order in the unity, it must be honored and respected by the wife. I wonder, I wonder if there is a seriously troubled marriage on the face of the earth where the husband is honoring the fundamental unity in the marriage relationship and where the wife is honoring the order God has placed in that unity. I think if if the husband does what he should do and the wife does what she should do, there's not going to be a problem. Oh, there'd be difficulties, there'd be trials. We're not living in fantasy land now, are we? Oh, but the, the power and the goodness of God will be there to overcome it all. But Satan wants to tempt us away from it. You see, what he wants to tempt husbands with is husbands, in their sinful desires, they want the order without the unity to where they're the heads, but they don't respect the unity of the marriage relationship. Yes, woman, you know I'm the head of this, but you're not the head of a oneness. So that's the great temptation for husbands. You want the order, but not the unity. But let's admit what the great temptation for the wives is. You want the unity, but not the order. You want the unity to say, well, yes, we come together. We're just equal partners. And, you know, we just make the decisions together and nobody's in charge of anything else. As a matter of fact, he can decide all the big things and I'll decide all the little things. It's funny, the little thing, a big thing has never come up in the relationship yet, has it? <laughs> it's just how it seems to work. You get the idea, don't you, folks? God has established this wonderful blessing of unity in the marriage relationship. And he's put an order inside of that unity. So I'm going to ask you to avoid the great temptation as we leave this. And this is for those of you who are married. Here's the great temptation. Do not pray for your spouse after today's sermon. I don't want you to pray a single prayer for your spouse. Pray for your spouse tomorrow. But today, after this message, don't you go and pray, Oh, Lord, help my wife to hear what the Bible says here. (laughs) Oh, Lord, help my husband to get it through his thick skull. Please, God. No, make your prayer, God, help me. I need your help, Lord God. I need you to touch my mind and to transform my thinking. Husbands, you need to pray before God with all sincerity of heart. Father, impress on my mind and in my actions how I can honor the fundamental unity of the marriage relationship. And wives, you make it your consecrated prayer before God. Lord God, show me how I can honor the order that you have put in the unity in the marriage relationship. As God works those things in husbands and in wives, It's just going to be blessing all around. We're going to be so blessed. There's no stopping the smiles on people's faces. You're not even going to have to put on that fake smile when you walk into church because you just got in a fight on the way over here. So friends, this is a big issue, a big issue, because, you know, God wants your marriage to be a tremendous blessing in your life. He loves you, and he wants your marriage to bless you, not seem like a curse. So let's follow his instructions. And you know what? He'll transform it. Maybe not overnight, but he'll begin that transforming work in you. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Father, I first want to pray this morning for everybody here who's not married. Maybe they've never been married, Lord, and they're wondering uh, when you'll bring that special person to them. 
Or Lord, maybe they have been married and they're, they're wounded from the pain of a prior divorce. Lord, I pray for everyone here who's not married, that you would give them special grace, special comfort, first of all, Lord, to understand the unique opportunity you give them for a oneness and a unity with you in this time. But also, Lord, I pray for those who are unmarried here today. Father, you would prepare them now to approach the marital relationship that you have for them one day, that you'd prepare them now to follow the biblical understanding of what marriage is about. Lord, I also want to pray for husbands and wives. I pray for myself, God, that you'd make me a better husband, more mindful, more honoring of the unity that's the foundational principle of my marriage. Lord, we pray for wives as well. Help them, Lord. What a, what a difficult challenge you give them, Lord, to respect the order in the marriage relationship, especially considering what kind of men we can be sometimes as husbands. So, Lord, bless them and pour out your spirit upon wives and husbands this morning. Father, we give you our marriages and we ask you, make them a blessing in our lives and transform them in any way to take away any sting of the curse. They might be an unparalleled blessing. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.